Uh, those of you that are just joining us today or just by way of refresher, we are in uh, a few weeks into a series called Marriage, Singleness, and Sex. And today we're at the sex part. So some of you are like, yeah, some of you are here for your first time in church. You're thinking, How did, what is my luck here? Um, <laughs> that this would occur. Um, the premise of this whole series, we are calling No Regrets, as Lori said. And just to be upfront about this, that uh, we don't think that this idea of having no regrets is only for those who are very young and maybe naive and haven't made any decisions yet. And so, uh, but really for the rest of us, uh, we just sort of have to live with what we've chosen. But to actually realize, know that the most important day in your life, which I have reminded you of every week, is today. The most important day of your life in your life with God is today. And that no matter what we have done in the past, the scriptures tell us today if you hear God's voice, don't close up. Don't give him the stiff arm. Don't let your heart grow hard. Today if you hear his voice, listen. And so no matter what we have done and often what we're talking about this week and today as well um, can be seen as, well, that's the ideal, but I live in the real. <laughs> And so I, how could I get there? I have already missed the boat, haven't I? Then to know but that, no, today, if we hear God's voice and say, God, I want to follow you today. I want my life to embrace your design. I'm tired of living my life by my design. I want your design for my life. That your life can begin to head in a very different direction. And not only that, and this is something only God can do, and, and, and the only reason I bring it up is because I have seen him do it. I've seen him do it in my life. I've seen him do it in the lives of other people, is that when we begin to let his design kind of overtake our lives, he miraculously reaches into a past we cannot change and brings healing to areas that are broken, brings restoration to things that we thought were long gone, and gives freedom to things that maybe in the past have been holding us back and like Lori said, actually allows our spirit to be free and move forward. And so that's been the premise of this whole thing. And so <clears throat> this week we're actually gonna talk about what is sex in marriage, in the context of marriage between a man and a woman, which is how God's design is. And next we're gonna talk about, well, what about sex outside of that? What about sex outside of marriage? What about same-sex sex? We're gonna talk about that next week. But today I wanna talk uh, about what is sex supposed to be in marriage? And so for those of you that are married, this is hopefully relevant for you. But even if you're not, even if you're hoping to be one day, or maybe you're not sure, maybe you decided probably I won't again. The more that we understand God's design for our lives, the more it changes every part of our lives, no matter what stage of life that we're in. Or maybe you're walking alongside people who are struggling through marriage, and many, many marriages in this day are struggling. And I think People just feel more open about actually admitting that. And so maybe you're walking alongside someone and maybe what you hear today from God's word will help you walk alongside them. Now, when it comes to sex, there's two things that our culture believes, or maybe just our minds tend to believe, which are both lies, but which really mess us up. One is that sex is not very powerful. It's no big deal. And two is that we know how to do it. We know what we're doing. Both of which are lies. It's immensely powerful. Our culture believes that this is just kind of a physical appetite. It's this thing that's supposed to happen. And as long as you're old enough and responsible for it, that that's okay. You're not really playing with fire. And yet, 20, this was from the internet filter review that was done in 2006. And I imagine that those statistics are even more now than then. But 25% of all web searches are for porn. 25%. And we're going to talk next week about, and, and at our sex ed day this week, so if you have kids in school, I don't care what you have on Saturday. I, I don't say this very often. 
you have got to get there. Unless you're perfectly fine with what your kids are at, where they're sexual, and you've got a total handle on it. If you're fine, you're the minority. I don't feel like I'm very fine, and most of the people I talk to, you've got to get there, but that's Saturday. We're going to talk about that. 25% of all web searches, which, tells, and which is what? People going online to watch other people have sex. Don't tell me it's not powerful when 25% of all web searches are for that. The porn industry in the U.S., makes more money than Microsoft, Google, and a bunch of other companies combined. It makes more money than the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball combined. It makes more money than CBC or CBS, NBC, ABC combined. It is a powerful thing. And so right off, we have to say, this is a huge deal. And secondly, we don't know what we're doing with it. Because most of us had the sex talk, if we had the sex talk, from parents who were very awkward, maybe they threw a book at us and said, okay, you should read this. And if you're a boy, you looked, if there were no pictures, you didn't read it. <laughs> or maybe they didn't have the talk with you at all because their parents didn't have the talk with them, so they don't know. So you just knew it was something awkward, dirty, maybe weird, and you just wanted that conversation to be over. So if you had the talk, you probably didn't learn too much, which left you to learn from your peers, your grade four friend, Billy, or whoever it was, who seemed to know a lot. Or perhaps you learned from past relationships, which is why many of us feel regret and hurt because you were learning from people who also didn't have the sex talk or had the sex talk, but that was all they had. And many people today have just learned from pornography, not because we're trying to learn, but because it has infected our mind with this. And so I think we have to say, wow, this is this powerful thing, and yet I don't actually really, I don't know if anyone really prepared me to know what to do with this and how to deal with it in my life. And, and I would say just, it's not a judgment call in our society, but it just seems like our society is, is in chaos with respect to sex. And certainly in the church, perhaps we never even, no one would ever even talk about sex in the church. If we ever heard about it, and unfortunately it was probably with a scandal. Like the priest or the pastor had a relationship with the worship leader or whatever. Someone's reading out a letter. Maybe you went through a church that got broken up over that. And so really what we have, as Christians, even we live in this culture, this powerful thing that we don't know much about in the church, maybe we, we felt like, well, I guess God doesn't really have any help for us except don't talk about it, it's dirty, it's something you should, it's, and yes, it's only for marriage, but you shouldn't talk about it until marriage and then you're supposed to know exactly what you're doing. And so many of us feel a little bit lost in this. Now, two things we have to remember as we look into what God's design is for sex. One is this, and you have to remember this, that God is good. There, there are things that are going on in your life. There are things that you're going to read about in Scripture, some of which you find very appealing and make sense, and you think, oh, of course, I would want that. And other things you're like, what? I find that offensive. I find that, you know, frustrating, or I don't want to have to embrace that. I have to believe as a follower of Christ that God is good, that Jesus came to show us the love and goodness of the Father, that God is good, that he loves you, he needs nothing from you, and wants everything for you. And so if he is bringing his design into our lives and offering a different way, an alternative way of living, maybe against some of the cultural norms, maybe against some of your own bent, maybe against some of your own um, feelings, that this is for your good. We just saying that you work all things together for my good. And so first we have to remember that God is good. Secondly is this. This, what I'm gonna talk to you about today and next week is for Christians, Christ followers. Okay, it's not the church's job to judge what is going on in the world. The Apostle Paul said, in case you think that just sounds like very postmodern and um, you know, that I made that up here in a very non-postmodern society, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Rhetorical question, answer, none. 
Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And so what we're gonna talk about is for Christ followers. Now you may be here and you're saying, well, I'm not sure if I'm a Christ follower. Well, that's okay. Maybe you might see something in this that says, I never thought about it that way and some of this makes me uncomfortable, but maybe, maybe there's something to this because maybe the lies that it's not powerful and I know what I'm doing are actually lies and I need a different way. But for those of us that are Christians, this is God's design for us. And when he's talking about judge, he doesn't mean like past judgment. It has such a negative word in our culture. He's saying it's not our job to worry about what other people are doing outside the church, but in the church as Christ followers, we are meant to be examining our lives, examining our behavior, and together, to do this together. So that's why in your home groups, you're gonna be talking about this as we go. So I wanna begin really at the beginning of scripture, Genesis 2, 19 to 25. And this is as God is creating the heavens and the earth. Here's what the Moses writes about the creation account. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man that he, to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Because of this, Moses says, people get married. This is what happens. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, before we get into this, just one thing I forgot to mention on the back of your bulletins and later on the service, we're gonna have some Q&A. There's a number there. You can text that number uh, if you have questions that are coming up through the service. I've told you before, when we went through the book of Genesis, which is the first book in scripture, that the opening pages of an ancient, of ancient document, ancient literature, set the stage for everything that's going to happen. And so it is so significant here that in the second chapter of the entire Bible, what is described for us is the sexual relationship between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And so this idea that sex is dirty, that sex is sort of, uh, that we should be prudish about it or ashamed about it or something that's hidden is not. Because here we have in the second chapter of, of the Bible, two naked people, a man and a woman in marriage staring at each other going, this is good. And yeah, and you have to get the sense of it. Okay, so God has Adam name all these creatures, right? And what's happening? Well, Adam's looking. He's not attracted to any of them. He's like naming them. And they're going, and they're going, and they're going, and they're going. And it says, but for, no, for Adam, no helper was found. In other words, hey, what about me? All these animals have each other. They have according to their kinds, but where's my kind? I'm by myself. And so there's this longing created in him. I want somebody to love for the rest of my life. Those of you under 30, that's Depeche Mode, okay? <laughs> so God puts Adam to sleep. And out of his body, in other words, someone like him was formed and yet not like him at all because he wakes up and he bursts into poetry. That's literally what, the, that's, that's Hebrew poetry. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called, whoa, man. <laughs> he knew God was good right in that moment. So there they are. There's nothing under the sheets, in the dark, fumbling around with belt buckles. Two naked people standing in front of one another. 
And God had already said all of creation was good, and Adam said, you are right. This is good. This scripture actually is so formational. Not only does it tell us in the narrative that sex between a man and a woman in marriage was a good thing, that's something God created for pleasure, not just procreation, but it actually gives us the sense of why sex is so powerful and how it works, what it's for. I'm going to borrow some of the language that um, Timothy Keller, who's a podcast mentor of mine, we're very close, he doesn't know that, but uh, I know that. I say I invited Jesus into my life when I was five and Tim Keller into my life in 99. But um, he describes this as, as, as what Genesis unpacks for us in this moment. Sex is this, it is the renewing of your vows. Sex is the renewal of our vows. It is the repetition, in a sense, ceremoniously, of what a man and a wife say to each other when they get married. And do you remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the two words of marriage and we said that it's not what? It's not what? If you, come on, people weren't here, some of them don't know, say it out loud. It's not what? Which is the language of what? A contract. It's what instead? I do. Which is the language of what? A covenant, which is no matter what you do, I do. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter was, we said, our charter for those who say, I do, this is what I'm doing, no matter what you do. That is the covenant. It does not have a lot of details in it. It doesn't say if this, then this. It doesn't actually have any sense of what the future is going to hold. It just says no matter what the future holds, and this is what you know, crazy people say to each other when they get married. <laughs> in sickness and in health, no matter what happens, I do. And those are the vows that are exchanged in the covenant. And in the context of that relationship, husband and wife come together in a sexual union that expresses those vows again. And here's why. And this is how it works. It does it in two ways. First of all, sex is radical self-donation. It is radical self-donation. And we get this from the verse when it says, one flesh the two become one flesh. Now in scripture, this idea of one flesh, which is repeated a couple times, it's a synecdote. A synecdote is like, it's where a part of something actually represents the whole thing. And so if you said, well, I needed to find someone in a company, so I hired a headhunter. Well, they're not just bringing you a head, right? They're bringing you a body. They're bringing you a whole person. But you say headhunter, that's a synecdote. It's that the head represents the whole person, the employee, whatever. What, the word flesh in this context is that way. It doesn't just refer to body, it actually refers to the whole self. And so when scripture says in marriage, which is, sim and this aspect of marriage is symbolized by sex, just as two become one in the act of sex, one enters into the other. So this is actually symbolic of a whole life oneness. It's not just that two people come together physically, but actually emotionally, spiritually, the whole being is represented by this idea of one flesh. And in that sense, if marriage is, is, is the expression of vows that say I do, and sex is the covenanting of those vows, then it is a radical self-giving. That's what happens in sex, that one person radically gives themselves to the other, whole life. It's radical because it's not just flesh. We're not just having a physical interaction here. I am giving myself to you spiritually, emotionally. And 
Sex therapists who are not Christians even know this. What do they say is the most important sex organ you have? Your mind. We know also sex, which is what our culture says, it's just a physical thing. It's an appetite. You just, you just need to eat. And so as long as you're old enough and mature enough to eat wisely or eat safely, then you should do it. But we know that's not true. Any of you that have had any kind of abuse or you've dealt with people who've been abused in their past, the most difficult kind to heal from is sexual abuse. If it was just a physical thing, it would have healed a long time ago. If you had a broken arm when you were six, chances are you've long healed from that. Physically, our bodies can heal. But if you've had trauma of the heart, if you were sexually abused or you know anyone, that is a lifelong journey of healing. Why? Because it's not just a physical thing. It has to do with the mind and the soul and the body. And even if it wasn't as a child, even as an adult, in two consenting adults, many of you maybe have had regrets, not at the physical level, your body's fine, but emotionally you know you bear some scars. It's not just a physical thing. The scriptures tell us, no, way more than that. This is whole life oneness. It's radical. But it is radical self-giving. Sex is not an act of taking. In that sense, sex is not for personal pleasure, but for community building. That as I give myself to my spouse, sex is the symbol that this is a radical self-giving, that all of my life is theirs. All of my life is yours. I'm holding nothing back from you, which is why Sex is so destructive in our culture because we have all these people giving themselves away physically and holding themselves back emotionally, psychologically. The hookup culture means you don't even need to know the other person. You don't need to know their story. You don't need to know their emotions. You don't need to know they're wired in order to have physical engagement, which is true, but that's not one flesh sex that the scriptures talk about. And so as we repeatedly have sort of one flesh union, with the person that we have given our whole lives to, what does it do? It cements the relationship over and over, more and more. Every time you have sex in marriage, it cements those vows. It brings the two people closer together. It says, I have given my whole self to you. That's what makes sex so powerful. And we cannot actually give ourselves, and we're, I'm getting into a little bit of next week already, we cannot give ourselves away physically without giving parts of ourselves emotionally, psychologically, which is why when we bond and then break and then bond and then break and then bond and then break, pieces of ourselves are left over in every relationship past. And then suddenly when we want to settle down, we, 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 we don't feel like a whole person anymore. Because this is one flesh. It is a radical self-giving. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 4. I have a new Bible here and it doesn't have that little piece of silk that, uh, you know. You 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 4. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 4. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. This would have been stunning language for the first century. In the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, a man got married 
to secure heirs so that his estate would be in good hands going forward. But he had, but it wasn't for sexual fulfillment. He had sexual fulfillment outside of marriage. It was very legitimate for a Greco-Roman man to go and, and meet with prostitutes and have sexual fulfillment outside of marriage. And marriage was a place where you had heirs and have children. Now, it wasn't okay for a woman to do that, but it was okay for a man to do that. And into that culture, Paul says this, husbands, your body is not your own. It's for your wife's enjoyment. Wives, your body is not your own. It's for your husband's enjoyment. What's he saying? Radical self-giving. This is for you. Sex is the act by which I give myself to you. I'm not trying to take anything from you, but in this act, I am telling you that all of my life is yours. I have given myself to you, mind, body, soul. And the sex act reminds us of that. And that's why God made it good so we do it over and over again because we get cemented together every time we do. We're saying, I do, I do, I do. Which is why it's so destructive if you've never said I do to be giving yourself away like that. But the second one is this, the second piece of this is not just radical self-donation, but radical self-disclosure. This is maybe one of the most beautiful statements in all of scripture. It says, Adam and Eve, or the husband and wife, were naked before one another and felt no shame. When sin came into the world, what is the first thing they did? And God, God knew something was off. Why are you ashamed of your bodies in front of each other? Shame, which has come to mark so much of our interaction sexually, was not a part of the first marriage. It was this symbol of saying, I am so comfortable with who I am that I don't feel the need to cover up in front of you. It's a way of saying, I'm so into you and I want you to have pleasure that I'm not trying to hold any of myself back. I trust you. I'm not worried about what you might think of me or if you saw the whole of me that you would reject it because, and so in every other relationship where I feel like I have to manage my image a little bit in sex, again, not under the sheets in the dark, but out in the open, nakedness without shame, this is who I am. And over time, if time and gravity take over, I'm still not gonna be ashamed who I am because over time, what? We have given ourselves to each other over and over and over and my body is yours. And that is my gift to you. Radical self-donation, but radical self-disclosure is I will not hide anything from you. Which is why we can't experience the fullness in sex, which is why so many people find one partner or any partner, which is why they turn to porn, not enough. Why? Because they have not actually fully disclosed themselves. They're still holding back and trying their hand at it. And we find it unfulfilling in that. But in the context of marriage, where there is radical self-giving, radical self-disclosure, we are bonded together in the way that God meant us to be. It is this idea of knowing someone fully and being fully known. And what happens, what would happen in a relationship if two people over time were to continue to give themselves wholly to the other person, mind, body, soul, emotions, if they would continue to invest in the other person and build this amazing friendship which they consummate over and over in this kind of almost sacred ceremony of the recounting of the vows, what would happen if there was no shame, if there was no holding back, if we didn't try to hide things 
Some of us have trouble with sex because we are hiding other things from our spouse. And maybe we're not covering ourselves up physically, but we haven't gotten naked emotionally. And sometimes early on in a marriage, because nobody taught us this, we don't even know how to become vulnerable emotionally. And so we're getting naked physically without being truly naked as the self. The bonding doesn't happen the way it's meant to happen. And so then we get disappointed. And maybe we think, well, I'll read a book or I'll go to a sex therapist, but actually sex is an expression of a much deeper level of intimacy and often what is wrong with our sex life is not a sexual thing. It's because what it's happening, it's not representing what it's supposed to represent. If there isn't radical self-donation, if there isn't whole life oneness, if there isn't spiritual, mental, emotional connection and intimacy, then the sex act will fall far short of what we hope it will be. And yet if there is that there, think about it, and that over again and over again, that relationship of oneness, of disclosure, of vulnerability without any shame is cemented again and again and again by sex. What does that do? It builds the intimacy. What do you have in a relationship over time where that happens? You have trust. You have stability. You have peace. You have security. God made it that way that we would bond to each other through that when there is radical self-donation, when there is radical self-disclosure. And so let's say this, if it isn't working well uh, in your marriage, if you're struggling with it, if this is the expression of I do, okay, we need to look at ourselves then. Rather than think there's just something wrong with our partner or maybe this, you know, we just keep trying or whatever. I mean, keeping on trying is good. But looking at ourselves and saying, what's going on in my life? What's going on at the level of intimacy in our relationship? And, and women and men need different things. And, and some of this is generalization, but let me just say this. Some things that are gonna hurt your, your um, sex life or the things, maybe I can say this, these are intruders into your bedroom that you need to protect against. One of them is just lust. And we think, well, how would you have lust in marriage? Lust, the heart of lust is saying, I'm using another person for my own fulfillment. That's what lust is. It's selfishness. And in its, in its worst form, that's what rape is. Is I don't care about this other person. I'm just going to use them for my own gratification. But even in marriage, we can take sex in that direction where we think this is about me and what I'm getting out of it. How fulfilled am I? And this is something I need. Whereas this biblical perspective where it says, actually, this is not about what I need. This is me giving myself totally to the other person. See how, see how this is exactly what, what we said? It's, it's I do. My list, even in sex, is to give myself fully to you because I'm concerned with your enjoyment. And actually, sex therapists tell you that the most enjoyable sex is when you feel like your partner is being pleased. Isn't it interesting that God even made our, what is the most pleasurable thing for us? And so we are actually meant to give ourselves fully to that. And so we have to ask ourselves, and, some, and this isn't either that all your sex life is characterized this or none of this, but there is the heart of selfishness in every one of us. And so it's possible that lust has crept into our marriage if we're saying, well, what am I getting out of it? Instead of saying perspective shift, wait a second, how can I give myself more fully to the other person? And that brings us to two things which tend to <clears throat> you know, eat away at healthy sex in a marriage. One is if a man is not honoring his wife. Honor, men, is what we are meant to give to our wives. In other words, 
How often are we verbally complimenting them? Not just whether they look beautiful, that's important too, but on who they are. How are we affirming all of the things that we see in our wife that are amazing things? When someone says to us, oh, your wife is this, then you would say, oh yeah, she, you don't even know the half of it. I think she's even more amazing than you could see. How are we looking for those things? And so often, right, in our arguments, we're looking for the things that they are not wrong and we're thinking about the things that they aren't. But a wife needs to be honored by her husband and her husband is the one most able to honor his wife. If you have children, when was the last time you said to your wife, you're an amazing mom. I love how you do this. I love how you do that. If your wife works, has any kind of job other than being a mother as well, what, how do you know about what she's doing? Have you taken an interest in that to be able to say, wow, you're amazing at this? Or do you just let her work give her the accol accolades and you're like, oh, that's great. How much of an interest are you saying in honoring who she is? How do you speak about her in front of other people? Are you the one pouring rocket fuel into her fire by honoring her? That, guys, like oftentimes, you know, like guys, we're sort of compartmentalized. We can just do one thing at a time. And so whatever it is we're doing, and then like it's 10 o'clock and we're working, 10 05 and we're ready to go. You know, and our wife's like, what? You want to have sex now? We're just compartmentalized. She needs to feel that daily closeness and that you are her champion, that you are the one who sees maybe what other people miss that you're the first to affirm her. That is rocket fuel for her, and that's a daily thing. So if sex isn't going so well at 10 o'clock at night, you should start at 10 in the morning. You gotta text her to figure out what's happening in the day or what's for dinner or whatever's happening. What about texting her, telling her how much you appreciate her, how much you love her? Praise her physically, emotionally, spiritually. This is how we give honor to our wives. And women, what you can give to your husband more than anyone can give is respect. And that isn't just this thing like, oh, okay, I respect you, I'll do whatever you say. It says, I respect the way that you are. I respect the way that God has made you. I respect the way you deal with other people. I respect the way that you work. I trust you. I don't question or second guess everything that you say. That doesn't mean you just blindly accept whatever your husband says, but that he knows that his wife respects him and loves him and, and cares for him. How do you speak about your husband when he's not around? How do you speak when he is around? Respect for a husband is rocket fuel. He feels like a million bucks and no matter how much chaos is going on around in his life outside of the home, if he feels respected by his wife, he feels like a king. Respect and honor are things that we actually have at our disposal to freely give to our spouse. And that actually builds up this sense of intimacy and connection. And so if you're struggling with that part of, uh, in, in your sex life, crank up the honor and respect. And not just so you can have better sex, but to say, wait a second, maybe we're missing some of this other intimacy in our lives. How do we grow that together? One of the reasons we encourage you to get involved in ministry is one of the ways that I have seen things about my wife that I would never seen is the various things that she does. So as she's involved in all kinds of different things in our church or with different people, and I get to see things that I wouldn't see. So when I see her preparing for a lesson or she's gonna teach or just the interaction she has with people, 
or the way she is in our home group, it makes me, I, I, I want to give her honor for that because I love her. That Those are things that are, I wouldn't have seen otherwise. And so the diversity of relationships, spiritual maturity in the life of your spouse is a way for you to praise them and honor them. The other thing that we just have to be aware of in our culture is porn. Porn is, a, is the major intruder in the bedroom. And part of this, because like, even if we just want to accept the humanist perspective that this is just an appetite, it is an appetite out of control. And you know that like any appetite, the more you feed it, it doesn't actually go away, the more it grows. And if you give it an inordinate amount of satisfaction, or you actually need more the next time. Which is why if you eat more and more and more and more, you're going to need more and more to feel full. And this is exactly what our culture has tripped into with it was one, uh, one woman who said that, you know, porn is the public health crisis of, our, of the digital age. And so we have people, and maybe this was introduced to you when you were young, which often happens, or if you're battling with it now, and it tends to be more men than women, that this will be killing your sex life. Because it's impossible to find satisfaction in one woman, in a real woman, when porn is battling with you. So if that's been a battle of yours, you have to get help. And you can talk to me, talk to one of the guys in your home groups. Do not think you're alone with this, but this is one of those things that we have to guard the marriage bed against. It is gonna affect our marriages. And so if it is, or if you're concerned that it is, don't say that it'll never happen to me. I'll never struggle with that. That's just foolish talk. Say, I never want that. I never want that to sabotage what's happening in our marriage. Or if it is, put up your hand, get help. If it's going on in your marriage and your wife doesn't even know, this may be risky, but you need to tell her. Pick a good moment. But you need to tell her. And you need to get help. And don't tell her, I'll be fine. It's going on, but I'll be fine. No, what's your plan? How are you going to get help? But don't keep that from her. Don't hide that part of your life. Holding back, trying to not get naked in that area. What if there has been unfulfillment in your marriage? Well, you know, I'm talking about the ideal, but what if you say, well, yeah, we're missing the mark. And to, 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 to every couple, in one sense, is falling short of how this is what's supposed to be for various reasons. Or maybe if you're a single person saying, okay, great, that's what sex for is marriage, but I don't have that fulfillment in my life. And I don't know if I will, or I've already decided I won't. Sex will never be enough for us. It never will even the way God has designed it in marriage. It'll never be enough. It'll never be enough to fill, fill that hole that we want it to fill. It's actually a window for us to see the love of Christ. What's so interesting in Ephesians 5, when Paul is talking about marriage, he says, and he quotes Genesis, he says, the two will become one flesh, and this is a mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, this marriage thing is a mystery, but it's actually because it points to the mystery of Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride. That in a sense, the love of Christ comes to us, not in a sexual way, but just as a man and a woman come together, and many times new life comes out of that union, two people who are unlike each other bind together, and out of that comes life, which is one of the arguments for man, woman, marriage, and sex only in that context. In the same way, the love of Christ comes to us and births in us the Holy Spirit and gives us life. And it is a life that is meant to transcend even sex and marriage. 
Even if you say, well, it's pretty good. It's still not enough for you. And if you think that it is, that's why people end up chasing porn or extramarital relationships. Why? Because they can't get enough. Because it'll never be enough. Sex actually just points us to a deeper need for whole life intimacy. And what do we see on the cross but Christ's radical self-donation? Christ stripped naked, vulnerable, completely exposed, giving himself fully to us, for us, out of love. That is the transforming vulnerability and radical self-donation of the cross that truly meets the need in our hearts. And actually, it is the pathway to healing. If you've struggled with infidelity in your marriage, or maybe you had relationships before you got married that have now been hurtful to your marriage, know this, that the scriptures actually refer to all sin as cheating on Jesus. Time and again, God refers to himself as a lover. Christ is referred to as the bridegroom. And therefore, all sin is essentially saying, I want something else. Your love is not enough for me. Which means if you've cheated or you never cheated, we've all cheated. And that's not just a nice saying. Biblically, that is what it tells us that the greatest Cheating that has happened in our lives is in our own hearts and rejecting the love of God. And so on the cross, Christ offers to us forgiveness for the greatest infidelity in every one of our hearts. So even if you've messed up, you're not alone. We are all together at the foot of the cross. We are all in need of the transforming grace of the radical self-giving love of Christ that says, I know your heart. I love you anyway. And I have purpose to give myself to you. And each time we take communion, what are we receiving? His radical self-donation to us over and over and over again. So whatever you've messed up with sexually in your life, at the cross, we are all together needing the healing love of Jesus in our lives. Amen? So in the church, we're not going to point at certain sins and say, that's worse than this. Every sin is cheating on the perfect love of God who has been the faithful lover of our soul from the day we were born. And so together we come to Christ and receive that. And so what I want to do is just ask Pastor Tony to come up and pray because I think that this would be a morning and an opportunity for every one of us to repent. No matter what you've done, to say, Christ, I need your healing. I want to receive your radical love that is given to me. And that as I repent, repentance is this beautiful thing where we turn to him and say, no matter what I've done, you can heal me. Even if I feel like the people in my life haven't forgiven me yet or I haven't forgiven myself, today I want to turn to you and say, this heart has cheated on your love. And I need you to heal me. I need you to give me a deep peace and satisfaction in your love above anything. Let me just end with this and next step and I'll invite the worship team to come up and, and lead us in response. Uh, if you're married or single, here's what I'd suggest to you. Um, maybe you want to you know, like, experience of how could, you know, sex never be enough? What, how is the love of Christ greater in our lives? Um, take some time to read the Gospel of Luke, or uh, if you haven't seen the movie Son of God, it's actually a, a, a great portrayal of the life of Christ, and ask him to give you a fresh realization of his love for you. Uh, if you have not experienced that, do that. And then married couples, here's my advice to you. You don't have to take it, but here's a suggestion. Um, before you get naked the next time, get naked, okay? So I'm, I'm telling you to have sex, but here's before you do that. Um, start by renewing your vows. 
And, and use 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 6, which is just that love chapter. And just read it together. Ask for forgiveness where you have failed to love because we have all failed to love. Could be big things, could be small things, whatever it is, even just that day. And promise to love again. You might say, well, you know, but we failed and, and how can I really promise? You already did that on the day you got married. You promised to love faithfully. You didn't do that because you knew you'd be perfect. But the love of God was gonna keep you. And so the next time you have sex, before you get physically naked, get emotionally, spiritually naked with one another, read through 1 Corinthians 13. And this is for married people, okay? If you're not married, don't have sex. We'll talk about that next week. But if you're married, okay, and the Bible verse isn't gonna make anything better, read through it, confess to one another, and promise to love again. And then renew that vow. And do that again and again. And the more you can bring prayer and scripture into your sex life, the better it's gonna be. This may be weird for some of you, but if it's really weird for you, it's an indication that you have not been viewing sex properly in the context of your marriage. If it's really strange to pray before you have sex, really strange to read scripture before you have sex, that feels like foreign. That means you have kept God out of your sex life and you need to start. You need to do this more than ever if that's a strange thing. And it may seem awkward at first, but don't let that get in the way. Say, God, we want you. If you made this, if you made this, this amazing, powerful thing to have fulfillment in our marriage, we want this to be as, as good as it can be. So don't wimp out because it feels strange. And if one of you suggests it and it wasn't you, take the suggestion. Don't go, oh, pastor, you want to try this? Like, do it and trust God to do something amazing in your life. Let's stand together and worship. Let's just receive his blessing today. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I want to bless you with the power of today, that today would be a new day in your life. If you're married, that today would be a new day, a, a line in the sand, no going back after this, that you would sense God leading you into something new and that hope would be welling up in your heart. If you're a single person, I want to bless you that today you would have sensed that the love of Christ is enough for you in your life that you would feel it welling up in you, not just that you know in your head, but your heart would begin to respond to that. And I pray that this would be a new day for all of us to know that the shame of the past, whatever we have done, even if it was yesterday, would be washed away by his blood and that you would live and walk out of here today in Christ as a free person, a free man, a free woman. Would you receive that blessing? Amen. Thank you so much for coming.